If you have a Bible, let's look together this morning in Jonah chapter 2. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 2. I'm going to actually start at the end of chapter 1, and then we'll uh, read through all of chapter 2. This morning, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different, uh, just because y'all have been sitting for a while. Uh, it's an ancient practice of God's people whenever God's word is read to stand. And so not only do you probably need to get the blood phone a little bit, but uh, let's stand together. And I'm going to read God's word. If you would, please stand. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we gather here to acknowledge that this is your word, that it comes to us from you. And that your word is powerful, it's living, it sees everything about us. Help us, Lord, today, in these next few moments, if we haven't already, and if we have, help us to continue to connect your truth with our lives. Help us to understand that this word, this book, your gospel, is about Real life, real people, real situations. It's about our lives and how you have purpose to gain glory. So may we find your news this morning for us, Lord. May we see that it's good. And may the good news catch fire in our hearts. We pray this in dependence on you, Holy Spirit. And because of your work, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. As we explore Jonah together, remember that there are two themes that run throughout the book of Jonah that we're going to look at week after week. One of those themes is this, the importance of place. God is concerned about place. The second theme is the grace of God, that God is concerned about spreading his glory and reaching people, reaching you, reaching me by grace. If you want me to boil it down to one word for all of you, that, that was too much to handle, those two things. It's this, that the heart of God is, one word, relentless. Everything in this book is showing us how relentless the heart of God is. How God is committed 
to spreading his glory and showing his grace. This is what these themes have looked like so far in the story of Jonah. This is what these two themes have looked like in action. The first is that God is committed to pursuing Nineveh. If you look in chapter 4 and verse 11, you'll find out that God cares deeply for Nineveh. God is pursuing this place of Nineveh. And not only that, he summons Jonah to go there. He says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. But what Jonah does is he runs the opposite direction. Instead of going east, he decides, I'm going to go west. God, I understand what you've told me, but I want to do the opposite. Sound familiar? So Jonah ends up being on a ship. He's in a ship, on a ship, in the, in, on the sea, and God sends a storm. That's what we looked at last week. That God hurls this storm, as verse 4 tells you, and the storm comes upon the ship, and it is gaining violence. The storm is increasingly violent. It is shaking up the ship. And Jonah decides that he needs to be thrown into the sea. How in the world are we going to get rid of this storm? Well, we'll throw Jonah overboard. So he jumps out and dives out and is thrown into the sea. So where are we in the story this morning? Well, if you paid attention at all to the reading, we actually, in a quick answer, we're in a fish. We find ourselves in the belly of a fish. Jonah is tossed overboard into the sea, into the stormy sea, and it's there that God raised up a fish. And this fish comes up and swallows Jonah. And that's exactly where we are. You see, the belly of the fish... When you think of the belly of the fish, you can connect it to your life, and I connect it to my life in this way. The belly of the fish is a place of confinement. It's a place of isolation. It's a place where our strengths are all stripped away. Being in confinement is the place where all of our capabilities are rendered useless. It's the place where we understand that our only hope is really that God's mercy will shape us and form us. You see, it's not that God's mercy isn't at work through everything in our lives, because that is true. God is pursuing and shaping us with his mercy in everything. But there are moments in our lives in which we feel incredibly confined when all of our capabilities are stripped away and we have nothing else and we can think of nothing else. We are stripped so low that we are absolutely focused on God's mercy. And we know in those moments that God's mercy is what shapes us. That's exactly where Jonah is. And if you want to add anything more to that, you can add this. Jonah is voluntarily there. Don't forget, Jonah decided that it was time to throw himself into the sea. He didn't volunteer to go into the fish, but he voluntarily threw himself into the sea. The fish was God's provision. It's in those moments of solitude, it's in those moments of confinement that what happens in our lives can be exactly the same that happens here with Jonah. Do you notice what happens when Jonah finds himself in the belly of the fish? Look at the verses. Prayer. Prayer. All of chapter 2 
is Jonah's prayer. As a matter of fact, all of chapter 2 is the cry of Jonah's heart. If you were to go back and study about this prayer, what you would find is that this prayer is actually where Jonah is just borrowing language from the Psalms, the book of Psalms, the 150-chapter book in the Bible, the longest book in the Bible. Jonah has been taught the Psalms. Jonah has learned the Psalms. Those of you that might know your Bibles a little bit more, this might be easier for you to understand because Jonah grew up during the time of Elijah and Elisha. As a matter of fact, there's an ancient legend that Jonah himself was the young boy of the widow of Zarephath that was raised from the dead. Some have thought that he was that young boy that Elijah raised from the dead, and from that time on, Jonah was around Elisha. And Jonah was around Elisha. You see, it's never uncommon, it has never been uncommon for great teachers to have students around them. And Elijah and Elisha would have young boys around them and others that wanted to learn about the things of God. You see, Jonah, in learning about the things of God, would have read and been taught and sung the Psalms. He would have understood, at least in, to some extent, what the Psalms were really about. Now, if you feel as though this is really abstract, just think of it this way. The Psalms were the songbook for God's people. They were the songs of the Old Testament church. You see, in the same way that all of us like to listen to music, and we find songs that we really like, and we take lyrics, and those lyrics help us understand our lives, and those lyrics help us define our experiences, and those lyrics help give language and help us verbalize what's happening in our lives. That's what's happening with Jonah. I know that you love music, as do I. You don't have to be a musician to love music. My children have playlists on Spotify. We have workout playlists. We have playlists for doing stuff in the yard. We are listening to music a lot. Music affects us. Jonah is picking up song lyrics, and he's putting them together in this prayer. There's like nine different chapters in the Psalms and 11 different verses at least that Jonah draws from here in his prayer. And he is expressing all of them and putting them together to explain and try to help understand and try to declare what is happening in his life. You see, we need to think about prayer. Because what's happening in prayer is something that's far more than expressing our feelings, even though that's important. Praying to God is far more than expressing our feelings or describing the situations in our lives, although that's all true. It's all here in Jonah 2. He is expressing his feelings. He is describing a situation. But there's more. There's more. What we have in prayer is Jonah moves from expressing his feelings and moves from expressing what's going on in the situation in his life. He moves from all of that to the largeness of God. You see, in the midst of being in confinement, in the midst of being in situations in life in which you feel as though all your capabilities are stripped down to nothing, in those moments... Not only can you cry out to God, not only can you fight to try to describe what's going on, you can struggle to find and to understand the largeness of God. 
and how powerful God is. Prayer, you see, is far more than a scarecrow. You know what a scarecrow is, right? See, oftentimes we think of prayer as a scarecrow. Oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, my my prayer is kind of like a scarecrow. I, I just kind of patch together the these wants, and I just kind of put it in the ground so that by prayer, the scarecrow, I can ward away everything that I think is going to muck up my plan. Oftentimes we think of prayer as just pushing everything away that we don't want. But beloved, prayer is much deeper than that. Prayer is your whole soul and whole being is engaged in talking with God. It's digging deep into communion with God. Prayer with God is not tied to the fact that you are able to articulate yourself perfectly. God never answers our prayers based upon us choosing perfect words. Prayer is us struggling with God, striving to articulate everything that's going on, however poorly we may do so. Prayer is digging deep into our relationship with God. And that can be two seconds. It can be ten seconds. It can be minutes. It can be something that you've been praying for months, weeks, or years. Prayer is so much more than just simply expressing feelings. Prayer is so much more than just trying to keep bad things away from ruining your plan for your life and my plan for my life. Prayer, I remember this from a number of weeks ago, prayer feels like dinner with friends. Prayer feels like dinner with friends. You see, when you, when you have dinner with friends, you talk about all kinds of things. Sometimes there are awkward moments. And you have to embrace them and fight through them, right? Sometimes there are those moments where you're figuring out what to say and how to say things and listen. All that is going on. That's what living a praying life is like. It's talking to God, however poorly and inarticulately that comes out. Prayer is being useless and powerless before God. Prayer is not having it all together. Prayer is not saying things in just the right way. Prayer is admitting in God's presence that we are useless and we are powerless. Because do you know what happens when we are admitting that we have no power and when we are admitting that we are useless before God? What happens is, is that we are affirming that everything is of grace. When you are powerless before God, you are saying, God, everything is of grace. Everything that is possible, everything that I have, all that I am is because of your grace. So, beloved, never be afraid to poorly articulate yourself before God. Never be afraid of that. Don't ever let that stop you from praying to God and digging deep into your relationship with God. You see, notice what this prayer, what happens in this prayer. Notice, if you will, like a first layer. Notice that the whole prayer, Jonah moves from distress 
to commitment. Notice that Jonah moves from distress all the way to restoration. It's not just that he's committed, it's that this restoration. Look how he begins a prayer. If you look in verses 1 and 2, he says that he prays to the Lord, he calls out to God, and at the end of verse 2, he affirms that God hears his voice. You see, in the moments of confinement, in the moments where you feel like all your capabilities are stripped away and rendered useless, in those moments, you will find yourself often in distress. And Jonah's whole prayer takes us from distress all the way to resolve. You see, this is how Jonah describes his distress. Look at verse 2. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Isn't that fascinating? Jonah feels as though he is in hell. He feels as though he is in the place of the dead. Look at verse 4. Excuse me, verse 5. I am driven away from your sight and the waters closed in over me to take away, to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away. Can you sense how experiential this is? In those moments of confinement, in those moments of distress, what we feel as though is that we are dying. You know, when you think you're fainting, it's because you feel as though you're losing power and losing strength and losing concentration and losing focus and losing the ability to concentrate. He feels as though he is slowly dying. He feels as though the waters and the waves continue to crash over him and push him down. This is amazing imagery to say in verse 5. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. He feels as though he is so low under the water that he feels as though the vines that are at the bottom of the mountains have a hold of him and are pushing and pulling him down. Sound familiar? Have you ever felt distressed to the point where you feel like you're in hell? Where you feel as though you're fainting and losing grip on reality and everything? Jonah has been there too. You're not alone. But look where he ends. He ends with restoration. Look at what he says in verse 9. What I have vowed, I will pay. You see, in the moment of distress, at the end of his distress, as he worked through his distress, he realized that he was restored. He remembered that, oh yeah, God sent me to Nineveh. I said I would go. I need to go. Oftentimes that happens in our lives, doesn't it? In distress, we are reminded what God says and what he wants us to do. And by his grace, we are restored and we are committed to following him and obeying him afresh. You see, here's another layer. What Jonah finds in the midst of his distress is he is reminded of sacrifice. He is reminded of grace. Look at the text, if you will. He says, in the midst of his distress, hope begins to break through. Look at verse 4 and look at verse 7. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 4. Look at verse 7. 
When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah remembers the temple. In the midst of his distress, he is thinking about the temple. Do you know what happens at the temple? Sacrifice. Jonah is remembering that God is not only repulsed by sin, but that God in His grace acts to forgive sin. He acts to remind us that He has provided a substitute, something to die in our place. Jonah remembers that something had to die in order for him to be forgiven. The solution to Jonah being in distress was not, wow, I just need to try harder. The solution to distress is not to say, wow, well, I guess I need to get my act together. Jonah begins to understand what real hope is. Hope is beginning to break through because he's remembering God. He's remembering sacrifice. He's remembering, from our vantage point, Jesus. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament were all pictures of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make. And beloved, in our moments of distress and in our moments of confinement, guess what we need to remember? Guess what hope looks like? Guess what happens when hope begins to break through in our lives? We remember Jesus. And we connect our lives to what He has done. We connect our experience to His sacrifice on our behalf. Jonah is remembering the temple. Jonah is remembering the sacrifice. By His grace, beloved, we need to remember the sacrifice of Christ too. In the moments of our despair, we need to remember that Christ stood in our place. We need to actually connect the work of Jesus to the experiences in our lives. Otherwise, the gospel just continues to, you know, fly over our heads and not connect. And it's supposed to connect with our lives. This is why perhaps Jonah would say at the end of everything, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Look at the end of verse 9. He started out in great distress. He feels as though everything is closing in on him and pulling him down. He feels faint. He feels like he's in hell. But yet he remembers the temple. He remembers the sacrifice. And he declares salvation belongs to God. All of this is of grace. All of this. It's because God is in control. One other, another thing that's so beautiful about Jonah realizing this is found in verse 3. Look at what Jonah says. For you cast me into the deep. Well, if you go back and read chapter 1, you remember what happens. Jonah voluntarily says that I will get tossed over and then men throw him over. You see what's happening in the moment in which he finds himself in confinement, is he's starting to connect God's presence wherever he is. Yes, he voluntarily threw himself into the sea, but you know what? Now he realizes that it was God at work in him. 
It was God who was there. And you see, this is what makes the most profound difference in our lives, is that whenever we recognize that God is with us everywhere, all the time, in everything, it will add meaning and depth and joy and hope in our lives. God is not abstract from us. God is with us in these moments. And connecting the presence of God in the midst of our distresses adds depth and dimension and meaning. In other words, Jonah is saying, yes, Lord, I know that you're with me even here. Even here, you are with me. Even in my distress, Lord, you are with me. God is so close, and Jonah knows it. Well, do you know what it feels like when you go through a trial? Think about your life. Do you, do you know what it feels like to go through a trial? Do you, further, do you further know what it feels like to decide that you have come to the end of yourself and you realize, I'm in a trial, I'm in trouble, and you finally decide to throw yourself into that storm? Do you know what it feels like when you decide, I have to throw myself into the storm, meaning I need to think about my life and figure out the big questions and what am I doing and why am I here and what's going on? When you decide to throw yourself into the trial, do you know what it feels like? Do you know what it feels like to go from distress to restoration? Because this text is giving you a rather vivid image of what that's like. Do you know what it's like? Do you know what it feels like? The text tells you what it feels like is vomit. Sorry for those of you that has tender gag reflexes. But if you've been through distress, and if you've been through excruciating trial where you feel as though you were going to die, and you've been stripped of all of your capabilities, and you finally decide, I've got to throw myself into this, and you begin to try to find hope and try to recognize that God is there. He's not this abstraction. He's not this idea. And you move from distress to restoration. What we feel like in those moments is vomit. Jonah declares that salvation is from God, and the next thing that happens, God causes the fish to vomit him onto the shore. It's smelly, it stinks, and it's brutal. And Jonah knows exactly, this is exactly what he feels like. Even though, even though, hope has begun to shine brightly in Jonah's life. Even though, Jonah has been restored, even though Jonah has connected his life with sacrifice, it still feels wretched. And if you don't believe me, just wait to chapter 4. Beloved, it's real. God gives us these images for a reason, because they mean something to us. We can relate to them. They define and explain our lives. Well, that brings us to the so what. So what? What is this really saying? What is this really saying? What is this prayer really saying? What is this really communicating? I don't want any of us to leave here today without understanding how all of this is explaining to us the message of the gospel. Because when the gospel begins to work in you and in me, 
When the gospel continues to work on us and in us, when the gospel begins to break new ground in our lives, two things happen. And the first one is this. The gospel convinces us that God is not interested in negotiation. Hear this. The gospel tells you that God is not interested in negotiating with you. He is not interested in negotiating with Dave. God is not interested in negotiating with Noah, excuse me, with Jonah. God is at work to bring Jonah into submission. Beloved, I just tell you right now, I've got nothing to bring to the table. Jonah had to realize that. God is not interested in negotiating with Jonah or with you or with me. And we might have picked up on this if you were here for chapter 1. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. And you remember how the gospel first comes to us in this book? Speak against them. You see, this is what it feels like. When you begin to understand the gospel, what happens is you feel as though God is against you. You feel as though, as though God is breaking your soul because he's redefining every single thing about you. He's telling you that you can't trust your emotions, your heart is corrupt, and you can't trust your feelings. And he's telling you that everything that you have built your identity on doesn't work. The gospel, the grace of the gospel comes to us and it is first of all against us. And we feel that way. But here's the truth. When the gospel begins to break new ground and convinces us that God might be against us, he's actually for us. God is for Nineveh. God is for Jonah. He is for you. He is for me. It just hurts. And he is not interested in submission. And do you know how useful this can be for you? It doesn't just hopefully cause you to pause and think about your life. But we live in a culture, spiritually speaking, the culture in which we live in in eastern North Carolina either presents the gospel this way or this is how the gospel is perceived. The gospel is often presented like this. You need to do the right thing and don't lose your salvation. Or, if you just had enough faith, you could control the circumstances in your life. Beloved, this has practical value, not only for your own heart, but as you leave here and go to work. As you leave here and enjoy the summer, as you leave here and love your children, as you leave here and love those that you work with and love your neighbors. People's disposition is that, oh, the gospel means that I need to do the right thing. The gospel means that if I had just enough faith, I could control these circumstances and get rid of the storm. And I want you to understand, God is not interested in negotiation. God's grace is at work to bring all of us into submission. And that is hard. And it's true. And the beauty of this 
is that when God's gospel is declared and his grace is beginning to, you're beginning to see his grace kind of face to face, if you will, and you're actually beginning to take it into your life. God doesn't come with you with a clenched fist in grace and like take swings to punch you. God's grace comes to you with open hands. The open hands of Jesus that have nail, blood-stained scars. God's grace to bring you into submission says, Look, I've paid it all. I've done everything. God's grace doesn't give you more control. It makes you realize He is in control. God's grace brings you into submission. It brings me into submission until we understand, oh yes, that is the unconditional love and that is the identity and that is the truth that I've always needed. And that's the truth that I need to live by. The second thing is this. Is that we need God's grace to go deeper. It's not just that God's grace doesn't negotiate with us. It's that we all need God's grace to go deeper into our lives. And I'll say it again. I really want you to think about your lives. I really want you to think about where you are and where you've been and where you might even want to go. In order to help you do that, I want to mention to you some significant events in my life. I'm not mentioning these to you because I'm trying to prove that I've lived a harder life than you or an easier life than you at all. It's just because we all need to reflect about the main things and major things in our lives. And I could give you a whole lot more than I'm going to. Here goes. I was exposed to pornography by a sixth grader when I was in second grade. I was around and offered and exposed to cocaine when I was 11. When I moved, when I moved from suburban Washington D.C. to Western Pennsylvania, I didn't. At the beginning of my eighth grade year, I had no idea where I was or what I was doing. I didn't feel like I belonged there. I didn't even know those people, and I certainly didn't grow up there. When I got out of high school, I went away to college, and I had more freedom, and I had more, whatever you want to say, I had more freedom than I could ever dream of at least at that point in my life. I could do anything I wanted, anytime, just about. I didn't have to go to class if I didn't want to. I could stay out all night. I could eat whatever I wanted. I could make whatever decisions, just about, that I wanted to. When I got out of college, I went to grad school. Well, by that point, I was really living on my own. Then, not long after that, I was engaged. Not long after that, I was married. Not terribly long after that, God blessed me with children. Not long after that, God was doing something on a campus, and he asked me to come and be part of that, and I did. Not terribly long after that, God called me to come here, to move my family to Greenville, North Carolina. And do you know what I needed every step grace. Whether I was eight years old or whether I'm 39, I need God's grace to be with me every step of my life. 
I need God's grace to go deeper into my life every moment of every experience of every day. And sometimes we think to ourselves, well, you know, things would just get better if I could just go back. Right? And God says, no. You don't need to go back. You need my grace to go deep and deeper into you. You need to understand that I'm with you everywhere. No matter what stage of life, no matter what experience you're having. You need my grace. You need me to be with you. Recently we sold, Jenny and I sold a, a, a lamp post for your yard. We sold it on Craigslist and we met the lady who wanted to buy it from us. And she looked at the lampstand and she liked it well enough and decided she was going to buy it. And of course she tried to haggle us down the price, but we weren't going to do that. And she inspected it to her satisfaction and then we were about to leave and we decided, oh yeah, we, we need to write a receipt. So I was tasked with writing the receipt. And you know, when you write a receipt for those types of things, whether you're buying a new used car or whether you're selling something yourself, you know that little, those two little words that you have to put in there? As is. Because if you don't put as is, someone buys something from you and then they blame you, right? Beloved, I want you to know the grace of God is for your life as is. Not what you want, not what you hope, not what you could ever dream. The grace of God, the gospel is for life as is. Let's pray together. Father, Father,